Welcome once again to Proclaiming the One. Pastor Clint Poppy, Pastor Adam Moline, Vicar Daniel Golden. We are privileged to serve the saints at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lincoln, Nebraska. Each week we come together, we look at the upcoming readings for our Sunday morning worship, an opportunity for you to prepare in more detail for your personal devotional life, your family devotional life, and especially for your time in God's house. Today we're looking at the readings for the 11th Sunday after Trinity. And uh, we had as our bumper music coming in, we had a very familiar Lenten hymn, a hymn that uh, in my travels to Haiti, uh, the Haiti Lutheran Church almost always sang that hymn during the distribution of the Lord's Supper uh, year round, which I thought was uh, quite telling and quite unique. We do have a little bit of a Lenten flavor and a Lenten feel to uh, to our readings for today. And so keep that in the back of your mind. We're going to take a look, first of all, at our introit, selected verses from Psalm 68. Vicar, take it away. God is in his holy habitation. He settles the solitary in a home. The God of Israel, he is the one who gives power and strength to his people. God shall arise. His enemies shall be scattered. And those who hate him shall flee before him. But the righteous shall be glad. They shall exult before God. They shall be jubilant with joy. O God, when you went out before your people in your goodness, O God, you provided for the needy. Blessed be the Lord, who who daily bears us up. God is our salvation. God is our salvation. Great theme for uh, for that introit, great theme for Psalm 68, and a great theme for the 11th Sunday after Trinity. want to pick this apart just a little bit here. The uh, antiphon, the part that is repeated at the beginning and the end, uh, God is in his holy habitation. When I think of the word habitation, I think of habitat. I think of habitio, which means in Latin, I dwell. So house, dwelling, um, habitat for humanity. Uh, people build houses for the less fortunate. Um, habitat, uh, habitat for <coughs> pheasants. What if, what? Um, that, pheasants forever is what you're thinking of. Yeah, pheasants. But- yeah, but but they're all about habitat, the yep. the place where the pheasants uh, where the pheasants live. So, um, God is in His holy habitation. What's going on there, Pastor? What where where does God where where is God's holy dwelling place? Well, that's that's my the heart. Important question, isn't it? Where is God? And throughout the history of the the church, there's lots of different answers, and some of them are better than others, like uh, one that's not very good is In My Heart. Uh, I think the book uh, The Hammer of God by Bo Geertz has a great uh, quote about that. What in the world would God want to live in your heart for, you dirty, rotten sinner, is kind of basically what he says in that book. And he's right. Um, Where is God? In... um, First off, we see God, we know he's in heaven, right? The place where God dwells. And in fact, the definition of heaven is where God is. 
Um, and we see pictures of that in different places in Scripture, for example, in Ezekiel and the book of Revelation, uh, and I would even say things like the transfiguration, we see heaven. Um, we also have um, God dwelling uh, in particular means to talk or give forgiveness to his people. So we have God talks to Moses through the burning bush, and he leads the people of Israel in a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of cloud by day. Uh, we also see, and I think this is where this is starting to go, uh, when King Solomon builds the temple, it is the place where God physically dwells in uh, amongst his people, and that's a fulfillment then of the tabernacle that traveled around with God's people in the wilderness, uh, and also then God dwelt between the cherubim of the Ark of the Covenant inside the tabernacle, which led them on a lot of their military campaigns. For example, uh, they carried it in front of the group of people when the walls of Jericho fell down. So the temple, the place between the cherubim uh, of the Ark of the Holy Covenant where God dwelt uh, is the first place then that this particular psalm probably has in mind, the Holy of Holies. Uh, and then we also have then additionally in the New Testament, uh, we have Jesus being that Ark, if you will, of the covenant. Jesus being the place where God dwells uh, and uh, makes his dwelling among us. And so we have that fulfillment then of the holy habitation of God in the personal work of Jesus and in the incarnation of Jesus uh, in the New Testament, uh, then leading again to what is heaven really going to be for us. It's going to be seeing God, Jesus, face to face. That's a long answer, I suppose. No, no, no. And and we could go on and on and on. We could have the whole program on this we today. We could. Um, when, when I hear about where God dwells as a Lutheran Christian, as a sacramental Christian— I want to take this as real presence talk. God is really present among his people. The uh, glory of God, the kavod of God in the Old Testament where he is really present. The incarnation of Jesus where he is really present. And I want to make that leap to how he is really present among us today where his word is taught in his truth and purity, where the sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper, are according to his command and promise. Am I reading something into the Bible when I look at Scripture that way? Or is that a faithful way of bringing that real presence theology out of God's word? I believe it's faithful to do that because the reality is God is where he promises to be. And so if God says he's going to be in his word, then we ought to look for him there. If God says, I'm going to be here in this bread and wine and it's really going to be my body and blood, uh, we should look for him there. God promises to be where uh, God is where he promises to be. And that's why I think, too, it says in this particular verse, God is in his holy habitation. And we need to remember that part of it, where God is, is holy because God is holy, holy, holy. And that's why we behave the way that we do in the worship service where the word and the sacraments are because God promises to be there. And so maybe your congregation has a um, place where you kneel to receive the Lord's Supper. Have you ever thought about why you do that? I think lots of times people think, well, it's very practical, then it's easier for the pastor to give me the bread or make sure he doesn't pour the wine down the front of my shirt. No, it's actually you're kneeling because God promises to be in the bread and wine with his body and blood for the forgiveness of your sins. And so because God is present, we kneel down before him the same way we would kneel if the Queen of England came in. Uh, the interesting thing is we have no problem 
bowing if the Queen of England came in, but if we understand what we're doing in church there, we have kind of an issue with it. Why would we ever do that? Um, or it's the same reason then why we stand up when we read the Holy Gospel lesson, because we believe God is really present in his word, and this is the uh, word par excellence that teaches us about Jesus, so we stand there. And so God's holiness then affects the way that we act, and we are holy too by receiving his gifts uh, from his holy habitation. Make sure you capture the thoughts that you just shared with us for your uh, upcoming Bible study slash book slash doctoral dissertation on uh, the whole idea of reverence uh, in the life of a Christian. Um, I know we're only getting one half of one verse here in our segment, and uh, I want to tie the ribbon around it. God is in his holy habitation. He, God, settles the solitary in a home. All these things that you've said about the real presence of God, about where God promises to be, where God dwells, and the holiness of God, he is doing this for someone else or for something else. He's not doing this just for himself. He settles the solitary in a home. Who is the solitary, and how are these solitary, I don't want to give away the answer, how are the solitary settled in a home? Well, um, let me, maybe, let me ask it in a little different way. Um, someone needs to be settled who has been displaced. We think of the early American settlers who went to the wilderness and settled. Who has been displaced and how are they settled in a home? Well, uh, what I was going to say is I would say the solitary are people who are sinful and maybe have been separated from God as a result of their sin, um, maybe been separated from family or friends in the same regard uh, because of sin, and God settles them. And what he does is he calls, gathers, enlightens, and sanctifies them through I mean, to go back to where we were just talking about, the places where he promises to be, the word and the sacrament. He uses those things to, um, and, and this, I mean, there's too many things to talk about. Here's my problem, right? This is the same Jesus says, I will make you fishers of men, right? The net that he casts out is the word and the sacrament. And it brings the fish into the boat. It brings the Christian into the ark of the Holy Christian Church. Uh, that's our home now. We are settled into that home through the waters of baptism. We're kept in that home being fed on the word and in the uh, sacrament of the altar. So in all these ways, God is the one doing the work of making us Christians, and I think that's really what this is alluding to in this particular psalm. And the uh, holiness, the holy habitation, the real presence of God is not just so God can prove that he can do it, that he can prove that he is a uh, mighty, majestic, our God is an awesome God kind of a God, but he does it for us. He does it for the solitary. He does it for the displaced. He does it for the person who doesn't have a home. Restless is our heart until we till it finds its home in Jesus. Isn't that an Augustine quote? We are restless. We are displaced. We are solitary and on our own with no hope until God rescues us, settles us, and he settles us by the power of the word. That's the spirit at work. 
He settles us in our home. The home is the church. The home is Jesus. And uh, maybe it's worth mentioning here, in the old days, this was maybe easier for us to actually comprehend because each town had its own church, and that's where you were. And there was parish guidelines. You know, this is where this particular parish ends and the next parish begins. And this is, you know, places like Sweden and other Germany when the uh, Lutheran church began. Here in America, it's a little crazier, and that's been to our detriment because, you know, uh, rather than being settled in a home, we might get frustrated at the comfort level of the pews and end up at another church. And the parish boundaries are crazy, and we as pastors don't always do as good communicating about these changes in parish boundaries, if you will, as we ought to, and that's to our shame and uh, detriment. And it's also a testimony to the shame of uh, the notion of a sanctuary city, or even uh, recently a church body called themselves a sanctuary church body uh, for people to avoid sin. Sanctuary is where sin is confronted and forgiven by the blood of Jesus. We need to take a short break. We're looking at the readings for the 11th Sunday after Trinity, proclaiming the one. Don't change that now. For that last triumphant cry, that is the telestai, the it is finished cry of Jesus from the cross. What a great hymn. What an awesome hymn. We need to sing that more often, Pastor Moline. Why don't you uh, work on that, huh? Sure thing. I'll talk to the guy who picks the hymns. Ah, there you go, Vicar. Um, <laughs> no, that's uh, that duty and responsibility usually falls to me so uh we just need to sing that hymn more often it's just such rich rich theological pictures that are there uh we are looking at uh the 11th sunday after trinity proclaiming the one and our gospel reading for the 11th sunday after trinity is luke 18 9 to 14 uh kind of a short little uh, to the point text here but one that i think many many people are familiar with even if they are not active christians i think this is an uh, an account that uh, many people both inside and outside the church are familiar with vicar you want to take it away luke 18 9 to 14 jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, 
This man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Literally, that is the bottom line of this text, the bottom line of this parable from Luke chapter 18. Um, We have several parables that uh, are kind of coming here. And in this part of Luke... It seems like we're kind of bouncing back and forth between miracle and parable and miracle and parable and miracle and parable. Uh, Luke 17, uh, the early verses in Luke 17 are pretty familiar because we have the healing of the 10 lepers. And so we've got this section going on where Jesus is really doing his Jesus stuff. At the beginning of the parable, Pastor, it says, Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and who treated others with contempt. What is the setting or the context that Jesus is telling this parable? Now, I know all of God's word speaks to all people, but what's the uh, historical scriptural reference or setting that's going on here? Well, from a historical perspective, um, we have to understand that ancient Judaism is not a united single Uh, force or religion. There are different parties and groups within uh, ancient Judaism. Kind of like Lutheranism today? Kind of like Lutheranism today. Kind of like basically all faiths of all times and all places. There's not really any united, completely, totally religion, and that's a result of sin. Uh, And within Judaism, there was different groups like the Pharisees and the Sadducees, uh, and there's several other groups, but those are the two main ones. And um, these different groups all had slightly different um, understandings of religion. For example, the Sadducees were in charge of the temple and the temple worship, and so they kind of... uh, they had particular things that they emphasized because of that. Uh, the Pharisees are more the local um, religious people that are in the synagogues in each community and village. And they're trying to teach the people how to be holy. And so their focus and emphasis is on the law and what the law means and how to do it. And uh, this is the group I'd say Jesus is probably leaning towards talking to because they're the people who... Um, write down laws to protect the other laws. So, you know, if you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath day, what's that mean? Well, it means you shouldn't take more than this many steps uh, or you shouldn't uh, lift something that weighs more than this. Uh, And they kind of create more laws to show how to keep the uh, Ten Commandment laws. And so the Pharisees are creating these laws. And when you do that, when your emphasis and focus is on the law, then you have a problem. Because you look at the law and you say, the law is not what I am doing. And so you either have to lie to yourself and say, ignore the places where you fall short of the law. Or um, what you do is you lower the bar and you make the law easier and easier and easier. And we still have these same exact problems today. What I'd encourage people to do is to listen to the words of Christ here because he's asking this question of you. um, Do you trust in yourself to be righteous or... Do you look to somewhere else for your righteousness? Do you treat other people with contempt because you think you're better than them? 
or do you think we're all in the same boat and look somewhere else for your righteousness and forgiveness and mercy? And that's really what Jesus is trying to get at here with this question, a statement. When, uh, when Jesus is speaking to the religious leaders of the day, uh, the problem is, um, you know, as you've, as you've uh, articulated, the problem is they thought they could have a righteousness from themselves. They did not need God, his word, his promises, his forgiveness. And so the people of God were being led by the leaders of the people of God in a way that was taking them away from the word of God rather than to the word of God. I think that's one of the reasons why Jesus is so uh, critical, maybe even hypercritical of the work of the religious leaders. Is that a fair uh, assumption or a fair observation of what was going on, or have I stretched it? No, I think it is a fair observation. Uh, and, and we think about our dogmatic definition of what sin is, being curved inward upon oneself. And that's what this is, right? You're looking at yourself and saying, what a nice guy that I am. And this always leads to unfaith, because faith is a gift from God that points us to Jesus Christ. And if we're looking at ourselves and not at Jesus, then we're going to struggle with faith. So what have we seen in the news here the last couple weeks? We saw Joshua Harris, who was the big self-help Christian dating marriage guru from my childhood, told everybody to kiss dating goodbye and um, all these things. What has he just come out and said? I'm not a Christian. I'm not a Christian because I couldn't keep the law. Uh, Or it also happened here with this guy from uh, the Big Praise Worship Church in Australia. Uh, What's the name of that business? They write all the praise songs. uh, Hillsong? Hillsong United. There we go. Hillsong United, the guy who writes a lot of the Christian praise worship, says, well, I'm kind of falling away from being a Christian. Why? Because the emphasis is all on what he's supposed to do. And when we think that way, we lose sight of Jesus, who's done everything for us and on our behalf. And eventually we lead to, uh, it leads to despair if we're looking at ourselves instead. So, Vicar, you've been doing a lot of work on this text. And when you have uh, the attitude of self-righteousness, sometimes it leads you to despair because you're doing it all by yourself. But sometimes it leads to a completely different attitude, not an attitude of despair, but an attitude of being very judgmental against others. And it seems like Jesus is specifically pointing out this particular sin here, treating others with contempt. Why is it that someone who would be justifying themselves by means of the law become very harsh, critical, and judgmental of other people? Well, it starts with being blind in your own sin. If you're blind to your sin, but you can clearly pick out the sins of others, but you cannot see the log that is in your own eye, uh, the fruit of that self-righteousness leads to judgment. And like verse 9 says, it treated others with contempt, like this tax collector. And we think of all the people that we treat with contempt these days. My brother who won't go to church or this homeless guy over here on the corner. Why don't you do this? Why don't you do that like I did? 
So uh, when we are puffing ourselves up, we become blind to our own sin, and our eyesight gets even sharper with the sin of others. And when we see the sin of others and are blinded to our own sin, it is easy to become critical, to become judgmental, and in a sense that aids our self-justification because we are continuing to puff ourselves up by pointing out what poor, miserable sinners everybody else is. Pastor? And that's, I mean, that's what has to happen, right? Because if you're going to heaven based upon your own works, you know that, um, boy, there's got to be a threshold, a cutoff, where people have been good enough to get into heaven and people are bad enough not to get into heaven. And so what you have to do is to convince yourself by looking at other people that you're above that magic threshold, right? Um, Jesus has bigger fish to fry than me because look at all these things that I've done. I've, I've given money to the church. I've uh, not committed adultery by cheating on my wife. I've uh, never stolen a car, but he has. So obviously I'm above the threshold and he's below the threshold. And that's the way that you convince yourself that you're saved. That's completely wrong, but that's the way the sinful nature has to work if that's the way you're going to be saved. We, uh, we need to be heading off to a break here in just a second. But something I want you both to ponder when we're going off to break is the Pharisee, by definition of what a Pharisee is, is a good guy. He's a pious guy. He's a good neighbor. He keeps all of his weeds pulled. He pays his taxes on time. Um, by outward standards in the world, th- this, is, this is a really, really good guy. How did we get to the point where this really, really good guy wants to justify himself? Ponder that question as we go into our break. This is Proclaiming the One. We're looking at the readings for the 11th Sunday after Trinity. Don't change that dial. You are listening to KNNALP 95.7 FM, Lincoln, Nebraska. Thousand, thousand thanks shall be, dearest Jesus, unto thee. Welcome back to Proclaiming the One. We're looking at the readings for the 11th Sunday after Trinity. In our first segment, we looked at the introit, selected verses from Psalm 68. In our second segment, we began our discussion of the gospel reading, Luke 18, 9 to 14, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, or if you're old enough like me, the Pharisee and the publican. Um, I remember so vividly when, um, when I was in Sunday school, one of the kids, and you got to remember, this is back in the 1960s, one of the, yeah, back in the olden days, one of my uh, classmates at Sunday school wanted to know uh, where the Democrats were in the Bible because we have Republicans, but we don't have Democrats. 
the old uh, King James Version and Revised Standard Version, the tax collector was called a publican. And uh, so, uh, yeah, we don't, it, with the more <laughs> modern versions, we don't have to worry about that. Um, we, uh, we here at Good Shepherd each week, we uh, look at the readings for the upcoming Sunday. 11th Sunday after Trinity is what we're examining this week. And uh, we... We do this program to help prepare you for worship, for your own uh, personal and private devotions. If you've got a church home, great, go to church. If not, please consider joining us here at Good Shepherd. We gather each Sunday at 8 and 1030 with Sunday school for all ages in between, Wednesday evening year-round at uh, 630 p.m., and you can also check us out on the website, listen on the radio, www.thecross957.org. Go to the archive section. Lots and lots of wonderful, wonderful theological programs there. And we always, always appreciate your feedback. The Gospel reading from Luke 18, 9 to 14, the Pharisee and the tax collector. Pastor, I left you with a question before we went to break. Um, you know, this Pharisee is the kind of guy we all want for a neighbor. He keeps his lawn mowed, the weeds trimmed, pays his taxes on time. He wins the lawn of the week uh, at least once during the summer. He has a marvelous Christmas light display. This is a good guy. This is a good guy. <laughs> by, by human standards and by human speaking, this is a good guy. What went wrong? Well, What went wrong? The... There's there's several things I'd say. Um, number one, he's evaluating himself only by the law, and uh, that always results in lying to yourself in some way, shape, or form. <clears throat> I think also um, he's afraid to admit that he's actually a sinner because he knows that's bad, and he doesn't want to see himself as a bad person. And uh, so he avoids voids that and so he tries to lower the the bar that he needs to accomplish in the law and maybe he gives himself some accomplishable goals you know so if i only take this many steps then i'm obeying the sabbath day and keeping it holy and uh, i know i can do that and so he sets up these lower lower hurdles he lowers the hurdle to get over to become a christian I, it's the same that mormons do or, or christians who would say something like well i can look as long as i don't touch right see we, we, we play the same these same thing. games today and so that's what this man does and little by little as he does this he starts to look not at the promises of a savior that are in the scriptures but instead at the laws that he can keep in the scripture or at least that he thinks he can keep in the scripture and as he does that he loses sight of where salvation really comes which is in the promised savior Jesus Christ who dies and rises again to take away the sin of the world we contrast <clears throat> the pharisee who outwardly is righteous but inwardly is not a believer because he is relying on his own words instead of the word of God. And we could say sinful just like us. Yeah, That's, yeah. absolutely. Uh, and we contrast this because Jesus does in the parable with the tax collector. And let's be honest, the tax collector is a scoundrel. The tax collector is a liar. He's a cheat. He is considered to be a traitor to his own people. Uh, this is not a good guy. This is not a good guy in any way, shape, or form. The world looks at this person rightly as um, 
let's see, there's an old episode of WKRP in Cincinnati, and the rock group that comes from England to play the concert in Cincinnati is called, do you know this? Do you know this? Great trivia. Scum of the earth. Scum of the earth. And that's exactly what this tax collector is. That's what he's considered. And not only does the world consider him scum of the earth, there's something different going on here too. Because the tax collector considers himself scum of the earth. And he comes into God's house with no pretenses, with no false piety. He stands off by himself. He beats his breast. And he says, uh, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Pastor, how can it possibly be that the man of God cannot see his own sin, but the miserable, scoundrel, scum-of-the-earth tax collector not only sees his own sin, but he knows where to go with his sin, and he clings and begs for the mercy of God? How, how can this be? Well, I'd say the only way it can be is actually by a miracle of God who promises to work in his word. And in fact, this is what um, the man is doing. He's making a good confession. The word confession means to say the same thing that God says. And God's word is clear that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, uh, that no one is righteous, no, not one, that our righteous deeds have become dirty rags in God's eyes. We could go on and on and on. God's word is very clear. And so... By saying what God's word says, he's making a good confession. And then also, he's taking to God what God promises about those who are sinful, that he promises to have mercy. And this is throughout the Old Old Testament as well, all the places where God promises that uh, he will show mercy in the coming Savior, the Messiah. And so this man's confession of faith matches up with what God's word says exactly. I'm a sinner. And you've promised to have mercy on sinners. And so I'm holding you to the things that you've said, O Lord. Jesus says that this man, the tax collector, goes home justified. Is he justified because he prayed the right prayer? Is he justified because he confessed sincerely enough or confessed totally enough? Uh, There's a lot of confusion with regard to this parable and the word justified or justification. Can you help us sort that out? Yeah, to go through those things that you've just said, I'd ask you who's running the verbs, who's doing the doing. So if the man's justified because he prayed the right prayer, then the work of justification once again upon his own shoulders, and he's in the same boat that the uh, other man is. Or if it's because he uh, confessed the right thing or you know, saying the right words, it's really the same thing you asked in two different ways. Yes. In both cases... It's uh, putting the work of salvation back upon himself when the truth is is that we are saved by grace through faith uh, without any merit or worthiness in ourselves. And uh, that's the reality that this man realizes. And it's that realization that he needs God's mercy and care and grace that leads him to the good confession. It's not just saying the words. It's the faith that's behind the words that justifies him. And that faith is a gift from God. And so I would I would uh, posit just based on what you just said that this text is a wonderful wonderful text to go to to refute those who would say that you have to ask Jesus into your heart or pray the sinner's prayer or uh, uh, participate in the altar call or whatever 
the doing those things puts you in the camp of the Pharisee rather than in the camp of the tax collector who realizes, like the, like the great uh, Christian hymn, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Uh, I've been working with Vicar uh, on this text for several weeks now, and uh, the point that I've made with him is that the key to this text is the last verse. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And the way that we humble ourselves is we humble ourselves before the word of God. The Pharisee did not humble himself before the word of God because he was too busy justifying himself. The tax collector humbled himself before the word of God. He knew he was a sinner, and he knew that he had no hope except the mercy of God. Humbling ourselves before the word of God. First of all, do you think that's a right reading of this particular text second of all how do we do it well um humbling yourself before the word of god um it's kind of an interesting thing uh the word there is definitely humbled himself um or no sorry the second part is whoever exalts himself will be uh the one who humbles himself will be exalted blah that the word is tapeno in uh, the Greek, and it does say tapenon a tu, which means themselves. So it is a humbling of yourself. The way this happens, though, is really something that happens from outside of us. And so that's the complicated part, I guess, of this particular text is we hear God's word and it cuts us to the heart. It says you are sinful, you have violated what God desires for your life, and that repentance, or this humbling of yourself then, is repentance, acknowledging who we are, and at the same time acknowledging who God is, the one who has mercy. And that's the reality of what this is all saying, is um, God's word works faith in us. And so we can't say even again that this man is doing a good work by humbling himself, but rather God's word is humbling him within by hearing that word and creating faith within him. Simply uh, listening to the word of God, God humbles us. Right. And uh, that's what we're talking about here, not some good work that we do. In the time that we have left, quick question for you, Pastor. So going home justified, now the tax collector went right back out lying and cheating and stealing and pocketing the tax collecting money that he did uh, or not? Well, <clears throat> that's the um, that's a long question in itself as well. The person you, you've in... You've got about a minute and a half. Yeah, the person in faith desires to live a holy life that's better than it was before because they realize the great price that had to be paid by our God to secure that forgiveness for us. Uh, and so he doesn't purposefully go out and live a life of a scoundrel as if the more I sin, the more grace I'll have. Paul talks about that. Um, so he tries to live a better life, but the reality is is that in this sinful world, that war is always going on within us until the day that we die. And uh, the old Adam and the new Adam are fighting within us. And sometimes the old Adam gets the upper hand, and sometimes the new Adam has the upper hand. And that's where we continue in confession and absolution until the day when we finally leave this world and are delivered from evil uh, to be with God uh, for all eternity in a place where the old Adam will no longer be there. And so that's a quick answer. Yeah, quick quick answer and just exactly what I was looking for. Uh, 
the gospel is not a license for us to sin. The gospel is not a license for us to wallow in the muck and mire of our sin and get some cheap grace and cheap forgiveness. The gospel changes our lives. The gospel gives us new life in the forgiveness of sin. We need to take a break. Proclaiming the one. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Proclaiming the One. We're looking at the readings for the 11th Sunday after Trinity. In our final segment today, we want to take a look at the epistle reading. Is that where we decided to go, Pastor? The epistle reading from the great resurrection chapter in the scriptures, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Vicar, take it away. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. You can see why this uh, epistle reading was chosen to complement or to go along with our parable of the Pharisee and the publican. It's kind of ironic that you want to, you want to think about a Pharisee and a publican all wrapped up into one. It's Paul. It's Paul. Uh, Saul uh, is a Pharisee of Pharisees. He is uh, zealous for the law. He uh, stands by guarding the coats of those who are stoning uh, Stephen. And uh, only because of a miraculous encounter where uh, Saul was not going to humble himself, God had to humble him. With the on the Damascus Road with the uh, with the light from above, and, and the word, uh, and the word, the, the words, the part that humbled him. Yeah, yeah. The the word and the light, uh, yeah. The the light got his attention and blinded him, and the word is what convicted him not only of his sin but also pointed him toward his one and only. Say, who are you, Lord? Uh, I'm, I'm Jesus, who you persecute. Oops. Yeah. Um, so we have we have all we have the Pharisee and the publican all wrapped up here in the life of Saint Paul, who worked harder than any of them, uh, just like the Pharisee is claiming his own works. 
but he realizes it was only by the grace of God. He considered himself the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because he persecuted the church. Marvelous, marvelous thing here. That's not what I want to go to. I want to look at the first two verses of 1 Corinthians 15. I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel. The gospel I preach to you. One, the gospel which you received. Two, the gospel in which you stand. Three, the gospel in which by which you are being saved. Four, the gospel, oh, and then it says, if you hold fast. Five, to the word I preached to you. We have several power-packed words, verbs. I don't know if they're imperatives or not, but there are several power-packed words there that in my mind, when I, when I read these words from 1 Corinthians 15, it's really, to me, a summary of how God, the Holy Spirit, calls, gathers, and enlightens the church. Is that, is that, a, is that an accurate way, or am I missing something here, Pastor? No, I think that's exactly what's happening. And he, what's he driving people to, to bring it back to the gospel lesson? Don't look at your works or what you've done. Look at the gospel, because it's in the gospel uh, that you have salvation. And it was preached into your ears. And Paul's also famous for Romans chapter 10, where uh, how can they hear unless someone preaches? Um, and uh, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So it was preached to you and you received it. Uh, Paul uses the same word that's used here for received when he talks about things like the words of institution, that which I have received, I now pass on to you. And that's the very same thing he does. How? Through the preaching that he just talked about. So um, he heard the gospel uh, straight from the mouth of Jesus. Uh, that Maybe that's the law part, right? Uh, I'm the one you're persecuting. And he heard the gospel then from um the pastor in Damascus, Ananias, or Annas, uh, Ananias, Ananias, right? Ananias, on Straight and, Street. Uh, on Straight Street. And so he heard the gospel preached from this guy. Jesus has died for all sins. He studies it, and that which he's heard and received himself, he now passes on to these people who have received it. And now they stand in that. They have their dwelling place uh, within that forgiveness, life, and salvation. They live the Christian life uh, as a result of having heard the word preached and received it. And because of that, living that Christian life and hearing that faith um, giving word, they are now saved, and they hold fast to that word no matter what challenges and struggles arise. So that definitely does describe the entire Christian life right there in those few verbs that Paul uses. And once again, to just reiterate what we said in our previous segment, uh, the tax collector was not saved or justified because he made the right prayer or said the right words in the same way we are not saved, 1 Corinthians 15, by the way which we receive or accept the gospel message. This is a passive reception God is the one giving it to us, and faith oftentimes is characterized as like uh, the hand that receives the gift of God. The hand doesn't do anything. It's just a receptacle that does it. Um, uh, the meaning to the third article of the Apostles' Creed, I believe that I cannot 
by my own reason or strength, believe in Jesus Christ, my Lord, or come to him. This is confirmed again and again and again and again in Scripture, and I just love to point that out. That's exactly right. That's the beauty about the word received. Um, to receive something, you don't do anything. To receive a Christmas gift, uh, you know, you don't do anything. It just shows up there. Uh, to receive a football on the football field, you might run a route down there, but if the quarterback doesn't throw the ball to you, you don't really receive anything. You've just wasted your energy and time. Uh, it requires someone else to do something for you to receive. Let me bounce something off of you. I've been playing with this. Uh, to receive something, you don't have to, you don't do, you have to be. Okay. To receive the football, you have to be on the field. To receive a Christmas present, you have to uh, be alive uh, at Christmas time, uh, or be in the family. To receive money from the will, you have to be named in the will. So it's a matter of identity, and our identity is in Christ by virtue of hearing the word of God and believing it. Uh, play around with that. You have to that's, think about that some. Yeah, that's that's a, a word picture that I've been that I've been playing with. Clings. I, I like that word too. Faith clings to Jesus the same way uh, a pant leg clings to your leg when there's static there. The pant no. doesn't do anything. It's stuck. Don't we have a hymn that says that? Faith yeah. clings to Jesus Christ alone, who did for all the world atone. Don't, don't, bad, bad key here. Don't, com don't complete it, Vicar. Okay. Um, and then the next part of this 1 Corinthians uh, 15 section, Pastor, uh, it says, uh, you know, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Again, echoing the words of institution there. Well, that's, and, and Paul's talking catechesis here. This is Catechism 101. You receive from somebody else who delivers. Okay. So, and then what is it? Christ died for our sins, according to the Scripture. He was buried. He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. He appeared to Cephas and the twelve. This sounds to me an awful lot like the same kind of wording that we have in the Apostles' Creed, in the Nicene Creed, in the Athanasian Creed. You said this is Catechesis 101. Is it fair to say that this content here, the bulk of 1 Corinthians 15, 1-10, is like a catechism or a creed or a public confession of faith before the whole world about who Jesus is and what he has done? Yeah, then this is the way learning was done back in the day. Someone would say something and you'd hear and listen and you repeat it back and that's that's uh, the whole delivering and receiving thing that he's talking about. And Paul is very good about saying this um, in the important places. I mean, so we talked about the words of institution. For I deliver unto you what I first received of most importance, that on the night he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus Christ took the bread and, and uh, all the rest of it. And, and so Paul's saying, this isn't something I've made up. This is the reality, the truth. And here's the truth. And... God willing, you'll receive the truth. And, and in this particular instance, what's the truth that he's trying to convey? Jesus really rose from the dead and lives and reigns to all eternity. And these are the people who saw it and witnessed it. And uh, if you don't take my word for it, you can take their word for it because they're happy to share it also. And we get that same word then in the Holy Scriptures. The eyewitness in the time we have left, Pastor, the eyewitness testimony to the resurrection of Jesus. Paul goes on and on and on, verse after verse after verse, about the importance of the eyewitness testimony. Does it really matter 
that yes. there were eyewitnesses. Help me out here. And and maybe since we just have a minute or two left, uh, go to YouTube and search Gary Habermas, uh, who is the uh, the uh, philosopher debater who debates people who deny Christianity about this very point. There is really no way you can deny the physical resurrection of Jesus. Um, the the scriptural account is clear the witnesses are clear there's no other way to explain the existence of the church and so you might not like what it means but the resurrection really truly happened and so my question for you listeners would be if it did happen uh, how does that inform what you think about god and jesus the eyewitness account of the resurrection of jesus is real it is true. It is evidence that would stand up in a court of law. It is evidence that demands a verdict, uh, to quote the old uh, Josh McDowell books that were popular about 30 or 40 years ago. And the eyewitness testimony of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the foundation on which the church is built. 1 Corinthians 15 goes on and says, If Christ has not been raised from the dead, your faith is futile. Why? Because you are still in your sins. If you're still in your sins, then you just as well be a Pharisee like the Pharisee in our uh, parable of Jesus. Do it yourself. See to it yourself. Pray to yourself. Justify yourself. But thanks be to God, we have so much more. We have a God who loves us and has delivered to us the deliverance won by Jesus Christ. We need to bring this program to a close. Thank you for tuning in to Proclaiming the One. This is the 11th Sunday after Trinity Lessons, and I would encourage you that this coming Sunday, get up, read your paper, drink your coffee, pray for your pastor, but most importantly, go to church. God's richest blessings in Christ. See you again next week. <laughs>